today, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And welcome to week 16 of our Romans series that has us walking through this deep yet amazing book. And I want to begin this morning kind of a little different than normal. I want to begin today with a story, and uh, then we'll see where that takes us. So the story is there, there were four brothers who left home for college and all became successful and wealthy doctors. Years later, they got together for dinner, kind of catching up on old times, and it was nearing their elderly mother's birthday. So they talked about, and, or as brothers do, they bragged about what they were getting their mother for her birthday. So the first son bragged, I'm building mom a new home. It's going to be huge. The second son said, well, I went to the Mercedes dealership and I'm having the dealer drop off a brand new SL 550 in her driveway. The third son said, well, I'm going to install a $100,000 theater system in her new house where she can watch her soap operas with all of her friends. The fourth son said, well, you know how much, how much mama loved to read the Bible and how she's unable to read the Bible now because she doesn't see very well anymore. Well, I met a preacher who told me about a parrot that could recite the entire Bible. It wasn't cheap, though. I had to commit to paying $100,000 for the next 20 years to his church, but the parrot is worth it. It took 20 preachers 12 years to train this parrot to recite the entire Bible. So everyone was very impressed by all the gifts. So after the birthday had come and gone, Mama sat down to write her thank you notes to her sons. And this is what she wrote. Milton, the house you built is so huge, I live in only one room, but I have to clean the whole house. Thanks anyway. She wrote to Marvin, I'm too old to travel, I stay home, I have groceries delivered, so I never use the Mercedes. The thought was nice. Thanks. She wrote to Michael, you gave me an expensive theater that can hold 50 people, but all my friends are dead. I can't hear, I can't see, I'll never use it, thanks anyway. Finally, she wrote to Melvin, you were the only son to have the good sense to give a little thought to your gift. The chicken was delicious. Some of you will get that tonight or maybe never. But what's the point? And here's the point. Getting new things is usually a welcome gesture for us. There's all kind of new things that we might love, that we might enjoy. There's probably new things that even right now we desire. But think about this. Just imagine right now getting a whole new you. Getting a whole new you because that's exactly what the Bible promises to anyone who is in Christ they are a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come that means there is a change that takes place in the here and now a change from the inside out and not only do you recognize it other people recognize it other people see a change that has taken place in your life and there's not only a change that has come there's a change that will come Praise God, we're all getting new bodies. Praise God, we're all getting facelifts. I mean, praise God, we will one day be free from the presence and from the power of sin forever and ever. That's what's coming for us. But as we wait, I want us to, this morning to dive in 
and see, according to the Apostle Paul and the Word of God, what is presently true of us, especially as a child of God and our relationship to the Spirit of God. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. We're going to read verses 12 through 17 today and then unpack these six verses together. So beginning at verse 12, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. We come, we come before your word today. Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. I think of the words we read this week in Hebrews 3. It said, today, if you hear my words, do not harden your hearts. This very day, God, we are hearing your word. Help us not to harden our hearts in this moment. But God, break our hearts. Show us, Lord, what it is that we need to see. If anyone is in this room that doesn't know you, Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. For others in this room, God, may today be the day that we, Lord, have confirmed, God, who we are in you. No matter what the enemy tells us, no matter what other people tell us, no matter what our past tells us, that we will know who we are in you. God, do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So as we said last week, in coming to Romans 8, we come to what many people say is the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Now, a Bible scholar named N.T. Wright calls Romans 8 a verifiable feast of Pauline themes that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. But here's what he says. If the church would hoist itself and catch the wind of Romans 8, there's no telling what might happen. If we just get a glimpse, brothers and sisters, and let Romans 8 just propel us forward, there is no telling where we're going. There's no telling what God will do. And part of what Paul is doing in and through Romans 8 is basically telling us what has happened to us and in us. Ultimately, we have been adopted by God. Ultimately, we are co-heirs with Christ. The big picture of Romans 8 is the story of God finding a people who were not his people and God in love making them not just his people but his children. We have gone from worldly wretchedness to a royal status. We can enter into the heavenly tabernacle with confidence and boldness that we truly belong in the same way that a son or daughter can come into the presence of their parents knowing that they belong there. Ultimately, God's courtroom is an adoption courtroom where God has called us and made us his own. And just think about this. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Did you know that you can forgive someone without ever entering into a relationship with them? It happens every day. Judges tell people, your, your sentence, sentence is commuted, and there's no relationship whatsoever. There's not an ongoing relationship. It's just over. 
And God could have just said, okay, you're forgiven. Just live your life the way you want to. But that's not what he did. God didn't just forgive us. Then he brought us in. And we become his sons and his daughters. Not just forgiveness, brothers and sisters. We have relationships. We have a relationship with God. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers to us. I love the words of J.I. Packer, who writes so beautifully concerning the doctrine of adoption. And here's what he writes. You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as a knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If you want to know how well someone understands Christianity, find that out. What they think of God being their father. He goes on to write this. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Listen, our understanding of Christianity cannot be any better than our grasp of our adoption in Christ. So let's unpack this morning three truths that shine forth from these six verses that reveal to us our relationship in the Spirit of God. The first truth is this. Let's see our identity in the Spirit. So the first truth, our identity in the Spirit. And just think about what we just read and how it shows us our identity. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's identity. Verse 15, you have received the Spirit of God. Adoption, you have been adopted by God. Identity. Verse 16, we are children of God. That's our identity. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of all that he has. Identity. Listen, the image of adoption tells us that no one is born into a true relationship with God. The fact that we have to receive our sonship proves that there was a time that we didn't have it. There was a time, brothers and sisters, that we were lost, that we, we are not naturally God's children. Originally, we are spiritual orphans. We are spiritual slaves. You see, before you and I were saved, our relationship with God was not intimate. It was not close. It was detached. It was distant. You could simply look at your relationship as being B.C., before Christ. Before Christ, what you had is this. You had holy God... And you had fallen humanity. Holy God, fallen humanity. Humanity that was at enmity with God. Humanity that was awaiting the judgment of God. And it's not that God didn't love you. Absolutely, God loved you. But there was separation between you and him because of that dirty three-letter word called sin. Isaiah 59 puts it this way. The Lord's hand is not too short that he cannot save. Praise God. But then it says this. Nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities or your sins have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the relationship between you as fallen humanity and God. There is complete separation. But things are different now. Now, the relationship you have 
isn't God and fallen humanity. The relationship you have now is God and child. You are a child of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Now, there's a popular statement or popular declaration in our culture, and it's popular, yet it is so deceiving. And that deceiving declaration is this. Everyone is a child of God. Everyone is God's child. Let me give you one problem with that statement. Jesus didn't agree with it. So Jesus didn't agree with it. So if Jesus doesn't agree with it, we probably shouldn't either. What I mean by that is think about this. The Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus, and they confront him, and they say to him, we all have one Father, God. So the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus, and they basically say, all of us are children of God. We're all God's children. And Jesus looked at them and said, well, if you were God's children, you would obey me. If you were God's children, you would believe me. If you were God's children, you would love me. If you were God's child, you would follow me. So because you don't do that, Jesus said, I'll tell you whose child you are. You're a child of the devil. Ouch. Super ouch. So apparently, according to Jesus, not everyone is a child of God. Now, let me be very clear. Every single person who has ever lived or who will ever live is a creation of God. Every single person who has ever lived is a creation of God, born in the image of God. Imago Dei is who we are, but not everyone is a child of God. The only way we become children of God is through one name, Jesus. One person, Jesus. That's how we come into the family, through Jesus Christ. And we are adopted. And I love this word because adoption is a word that Paul uses five different times throughout his letters. It's an analogy that he loved. He, he liked it. The, the picture he wanted to, to paint, that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ were adopted by God. Now, here's the background, and it's a Roman background because Paul is writing to Romans, to, to those in Rome. Someone who was adopted into a family in Rome lost all their ties to their previous family, but they gained all the new rights of the family they were adopted into. Even if the family had natural-born children, this child adopted in became co-heirs with them. It wasn't the natural-born and then him or her. No, they were on equal footing because the parents so set their love on that child and said, this child is ours. And this child has every right that these children have. It's a beautiful picture of what Paul is showing us. And what Paul is saying, don't miss this, is that God chose you. He chose me. And don't miss it here. God did not adopt cute little orphans. He adopted enemies. I think about mine and Missy's adoption process. Adopting from India, I can't speak for other countries, but for India, we went through this adoption process. It was long. It was hard. But the first match that we got, we got this match. It was an email, and it said, Sharwin. That was it. That was the only name he had. And we opened this picture, and it was a picture of this little two-year-old boy sitting in a chair, and he looked like a model. Now, we didn't accept him because he was absolutely adorable, but it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt at all that he was cute as he could be. And so we looked at these little pictures that we were getting. And, of course, in our minds, this cute little kid, we're like, oh, we know who he is already. 
boy, were we wrong. <laughs> the ideas that we thought about him, they were great ideas until he came into our life and turned it all upside down. But here's the point. God set his face to go to the most rebellious part of his kingdom, and God set his attention on the most mean-spirited, rebellious, in-your-face kids on the planet Earth, and God said, I'm going to them, and my son is going to give his life so that they can be mine. Listen, don't let this little nice little fuzzy thought come into your mind that God chose you because you were the cute kid. You were the ugly kid. I was the ugly kid. And if some of you, that's the only, your, your only takeaway from today is the pastor called me ugly. Well, wear it a little while and see if it fits. But the, 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 the <laughs> lighten up, guys, lighten up. But here's the point. Listen, apart from Christ, yes, we are ugly. We have been stained with sin. There is nothing in us that would draw God to us where God clicks in our picture and says, they're pretty cute, I'll pick them. No. Brothers and sisters, we are we were in rebellion against God. We were displeasing to God. His wrath was abiding upon us. We deserved every bit of punishment but God. Amen. But God. But God. But God. What does it mean to be a child of God? Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham Lotz, tells a story that helps us understand what it means. And if you have no idea who Billy Graham is, you are not a very good Baptist but Billy, Billy Graham is a famous evangelist who preached to millions upon millions throughout crusades throughout the world and who lived with his family in North Carolina. And Lot basically tells a story and says, imagine people coming to visit dad in his home. They drive up his long driveway and come to the gate. They knock on the gate and they say, Billy Graham, let us in. We've read your books. We've been to your crusades. We've watched you on TV. We've written to you. Now we've come to your house. Let us in. And she says that her father would say, depart from me. I don't know you. You're not a member of my family and I don't have an appointment with you. But then Lot says this. But when I drive up that same driveway and knock on that same gate, I say, Daddy, this is Ann, and I've come home. And that gate is thrown open, and I go inside because I'm a child of my father. She says this, my dad was known as a lot of things, an evangelist, a legend, an author, a confidant to presidents, but to me, he was just dad. Her identity changed everything, and brothers and sisters, so does ours. Our identity changes everything. He is ours, and we are his. So therefore, if you are in Christ, Father is what you call him. When we pray, we don't have to pray, oh, Great and mighty, awesome, holy, extravagant, magnificent one. Although, yes, he is all of those things. And we would do well to focus and pray through all of those things. But we get to pray our Father in heaven. Our Father. You are our Father. If you are in Christ, you are now part of the family. Welcome to the family. We're crazy. But we love each other and we love him. Welcome to the family. And we can approach our Father boldly. We have an end now with God. This is the heart of the New Testament message. Our identity in the Spirit changes everything. 
Which leads to the second truth, which is this. Our trajectory in the Spirit. Our trajectory in the Spirit. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, For if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul makes it very clear that in the Spirit, we are moving away from sin, not closer to it. So the Spirit is leading you, the Holy Spirit is leading you to holiness, not to impurity. No, it doesn't mean that you will be sinless, but through the working or the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you will sin less. You won't be sinless, but through the working of the Spirit in you and through you, you will sin less. But think about this. Don't miss this today. Sin is a predator, and sin is prowling around, seeking to devour, seeking to destroy, and sin doesn't care from where you've come. Sin could care less how far you've come. Sin could care less how much you know. Sin could care less how much you've accomplished. Sin could care less. All sin wants to do to the very day that you die is to destroy you. The very day you die, sin could care less about anything other than it wants to destroy you. That's why John Owen, the famous Puritan, said, you must always be killing sin or it will be killing you. You must always be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's what it does. And then look at verse 14. Verse 14 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are, don't miss this, sons of God. We are sons. Now let me just drill down just a second. Ladies, please don't feel here. This little angst in you going, why would Paul say sons and not say sons and daughters? That's just sexist. I don't care. Canceled. So we just canceled Paul in our our day. Don't don't let that sink in in this moment. It's actually better for you to be put in this category because in this day, in first century Rome, sons, sons got the inheritance. So sons are the ones that got the inheritance, not the daughters. So it is good for you that Paul is putting all of us in the same boat as sons. Now, you might be saying, well, I still don't like it. Well, you know what? I don't like the fact that I'm called a bride of Christ. Never look good in a dress, but I'm still loving the benefits. I'm loving the benefits of being his bride. And that's the point. We're his bride. We're his son. It's the beauty here, but don't miss what verse 14 says. Some of you are picturing me right now in a dress, and it's terrible. (laughs) Lord, help me. We are off the rails all together. But verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit. And don't miss that word. For the word led is a very personal term. It means to take one's hand and to escort them like a tour guide. So the Holy Spirit takes your hand, and he leads you through every part of your life, even the most difficult ones. I've heard so many Christians say, if, if, it had, if it hadn't been for the Lord, I would have never made it. You know what? You don't even know the half of it. That is so true, but you don't even know the half of it. Because of our relationship with the Lord and because we have the Spirit of God, we have the right to say in any situation, Holy Spirit, please, I don't know what to do. Show me what to do. We have the right to say, Holy Spirit, I'm confused. I don't know which way to go. Show me where to go. We have the right to say, Holy Spirit, I have decisions that I have to make and I don't know what to do. Show me. Give me the wisdom. And here's the beauty. He will. He will. He will. Listen, there are so many things in this book that God doesn't tell us. 
Wouldn't it be great if every single person got, or every single one of us got our own personal Bible? And our personal Bible was just God's word to us, and it showed us every detail of what God expected of us, and we, we wouldn't have any excuses whatsoever. But there are things that aren't in here. We don't know necessarily what college to go to, or what job to take, or who to marry, and all of those things. We know some parts of that, but we don't know it all. So how do we, how do we live not knowing the details? And here it is. Brothers and sisters, as you read the word of God and dwelt by the spirit of God, the spirit of God will apply the word of God to every circumstance in your life. So the spirit of God applies the word of God to every step you take. So if you're in the word of God, filled with the spirit of God, every step you take, the word of God, he's showing you what to do, showing you where to go. And when the Holy Spirit checks you, you stop. When the Holy Spirit gives you peace to keep going, you go. It's a picture of how we live and what we do. Thank God for the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's the best helper ever. That's what Jesus said. I'm going away. I'm going to send a helper to you. He's going to live with you. He's going to be in you. He's going to lead you or guide you in all truth. And I love the language of, of leading. It's a picture of a shepherd. Listen, shepherds don't, they didn't force their, their sheep. They don't beat their sheep. They lead their sheep. Think about this. Even Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Last week, we saw that the Holy Spirit is a person, third person of the Trinity. This week, we see the Holy Spirit is leading us. What does all this mean? And let me just tell you, and this, this is beautiful. It means that the Holy Spirit, don't miss this, is a gentleman. He doesn't bully us. He doesn't drive us. He doesn't force us. He leads us. He leads us by the hand. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads us where he would have us to go. Yet here is what I know. We have to want to be led. We have to want to be led. We have to relinquish control of our own lives so that he can lead us. We have to give it up so that he can lead, so that he can do what he does. Let him lead. And then verse 15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So we're talking about trajectory here, and here's the deal. In this trajectory, in the spirit, we're not falling back into fear. We're not going downward. We're going upward. Here's the beauty of what we have in the spirit. We're flying, brothers and sisters. And yes, there will be turbulence. There will be times when we have no idea what's going on in all other places. What, what are those stewardesses? What are they doing? What's happening? But here's what we can know. We will land safely. We will land safely. We have the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you want to get an idea of what this whole life is like, he says, picture a man walking along a road with his little boy holding hands. The little boy knows that this man is his father, and his father loves him. But suddenly, the father stops, picks up the boy, lifts him into his arms, embraces him, kisses him, and whispers in his ear, You're my son, and I love you. Jones then says, Then he puts him down, and they continue walking. The boy is no more a son when he's 
being embraced than he was before. The father's actions have not changed the relationship. It has not changed the status of the boy. But oh, what a difference it makes in his enjoyment. And that is exactly what God does with us, brothers and sisters. He, he walks us by the hand. He leads us. He guides us. He has good for us. All the while whispering in our ear, you're mine. I love you. I know what I'm doing. Follow me. I'm leading you to life and not away from it. I love you. You are mine. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. That's our trajectory in the spirit, which leads lastly to our security in the spirit. Our security in the spirit. Verse 15 says this, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba was a, a word that a little kid would, would lisp when he would call or she would call her dad, Daddy. It's what the picture, but Paul says it's not just a little lisp here, you're crying it. And the word cry means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. We're crying out, Abba, Father. And what it implies is this, we know who our Father is. We know that there is a relationship with God and we know that our God hears us when we cry, our God cares, our God knows, and our God is able. Amen. All of that in that word, we know, he knows us. And as a beloved child of God, we can know that he will never leave us or never forsake us. Please hear this, because there's someone here today or maybe watching online that needs to hear this. As a child of God, we don't have to continually have our hand on God, making sure he hasn't left us. We don't have to continually have our hand on him, looking back at him, making sure he hasn't moved, so, so we'll move with him and not mess it up. We don't have to keep our hand on God because he is keeping his hand on us. Amen. He's keeping his hand on us, and that changes everything. For you see, when Jesus was on this earth, he always spoke of God as Father. He prayed to God as Father. In fact, every single time Jesus prayed, except for one time, he always prayed to God as Father. The one exception was when Jesus was on the cross bearing your sin and my sin. And instead of saying, Father, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus didn't cry out to Abba Father because he was being forsaken. So that we can cry out to Abba Father knowing that we'll never be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken, brothers and sisters, so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought in. He was pushed away so that we could be drawn close and so that we could draw near to God. And then look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs fellow heirs with Christ. Don't miss that word, that phrase. We're fellow heirs with Christ. What's coming to Christ is coming to you. What's coming to Christ is coming to you. Now, we've got to be careful there because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and what is his is eternal worship. That's not coming to you. That's not yours. What's coming to him is a name that's above every name that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. You don't get that. So you, you don't get that. Everyone's not going to bow in your presence in heaven because for the, maybe the first time in your life it won't be about you. 
It will be about him. But here's the point. So where do we say we're, we're co-heirs with Christ? As a son of God. Him as the son, what's coming to him is coming to us. Let that sink in for just a moment. We are co-heirs with him. And then Paul says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, I know I'm a child of God, not just because the Bible tells me so. I'm a no, I know I'm a child of God because the spirit convinces me so. The spirit convinces me so. You know, what does that mean? In first century Rome, when the Romans would adopt a son or daughter into their family, there was a, always a formal ceremony. And their ceremony had to have several witnesses. So witnesses were always called to this ceremony to validate what was happening, to swear that the adoption was genuine. So why was that important? Let's just say that a, a father and a mother had natural-born children, adopted another child. The mother passed away. The father passed away. What would keep maybe those natural-born children from saying, we don't know who that person is. They just showed up and started calling him dad and mom and us brother and sister. We have no idea who he is or she is. They're not one of us. What would we do? And in those moments, it would be those witnesses that would say, oh, yeah, they are, because we were there when it happened. How do I know, I was a, how do I know I'm a child of God? Because I was there when it happened. But not only was I there when it happened, the Holy Spirit was there when it happened because I'm born again of the Spirit of God. This is what the Spirit does in you, brothers and sisters, and through you. The Holy Spirit secures and lets you know that you are not your own. You are His. And you will be His forever and ever and ever. I want to close with great advice from J.I. Packer. The immediate message to our hearts what we study in this chapter is this. He, he writes, Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother or sister too. Say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. And what he's saying is this. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. And ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life. And of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are children of God. Your eternal happiness hinges on one thing. Are you God's child? If you are in this room or listening online and you, you're not a child of God. Or right now the Spirit isn't confirming that to you. Oh, that today would be the day of salvation. Oh, that today would be the day that you cry out from the depths of your heart. Oh, God, I am lost. Oh, God, I don't know you. Oh, God, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy of you, God. I'm worthy of hell. But, God, I, I receive what your son has done for me. I receive and believe that he lived a life I could not live, a life of perfection. That he died a death, I could not die a death for my sins. And he conquered death in the grave. And I believe him to be my Savior and Lord. And the Bible says if we call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved right now.
in this moment. But let me also speak to the child of God in this room. Because here's what I know. Sometimes our circumstances and our screw-ups speak a whole lot louder than the words I just spoke to you. And what I mean by that is this. I wish I could stand up here and I could say, I got everything right this week. I haven't made one mistake. I, I didn't even make it to church without getting upset. I was fighting with Morgan about her making me late and saying, come on, let's, I'm going to leave without you. I promise I will say I won't. I didn't even make it to church. I didn't even make it to church without that. But here's what I know. In the midst of what we go through, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our past, there's a voice. It's a voice of an enemy, but guess what? It sounds a lot like our voice. And it speaks to us, and it says, you're not worthy. Don't you remember all the things you've done? Don't you remember all the ways you have hurt not just other people, but you've hurt God the Father? You've hurt the one who died for you? And we are almost convinced, if we listen and keep listening to those voices, just to give up, just to bow out, just to get out of the race. We're not doing anyone any good. Maybe you've never heard that voice, but I have. Brothers and sisters, there's a greater voice. There's a greater voice. And that voice is saying, but you're mine. And I'm going to say something I said a few weeks ago. When Jesus died, he died with his eyes open. Meaning Jesus didn't die with his eyes closed, and now he's looking around going, I didn't know y'all were this messed up. If I knew you were this messed up, I'd have never died for you. No, he died with his eyes open. He knew we were messed up in a hot mess, and he died for us anyway. It's the beauty of what we have in him. We get the better end of this deal. He doesn't, get, he doesn't get a very good end of this deal, but we get a very good end of this deal. We get him. He gets us. We get him. Oh, I pray. I pray today that you would understand who you, who you are in him or who you want to be in him. And may his spirit lead us to be and to do all the things that bring him glory and honor. I'm going to ask you to stand. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a God. Hallelujah, what a Father. We're going to call the musicians forward in this time, and let's just enter in this time of consecration. Father, Lord, we approach you now uh, humbly with humility. Lord, we know who we are. God, we know that we are so unworthy. And God, you are worthy. We are so unable, and yet, God, you're able. We can't, but God, you can. We haven't, and yet, Lord, you have. And you are, and you do. Lord, we come before you today, God, just praising you for what you have done for us. You've chosen us. You've brought us. You've forgiven us, declared us absolutely been justified. We've been declared not guilty. We've been declared righteous. But you didn't just stop there. You then brought us into your family. Father, I pray for anyone here, anyone listening, that is not the reality of their lives. That right now would be the, the moment of salvation. Holy Spirit, work in producing salvation. By which we know we are born again in you. I also pray for the child of God, the children of God all across this room. That Our weeks haven't been altogether victorious. Some have been nothing but defeat. And yet here we are. 
And the beauty is, God, the gate's not closed. The door's not locked. Even for us, you are saying, come home, my child. Come home. Father, whatever it is that you are speaking in this moment, Holy Spirit, help us to obey. Empower us to do. Empower us to be. In Jesus' name.